Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this season nine opener of Word, February means National Haiku Writing Month, Naha Raimo, and the 2023 KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest. The idea is to just celebrate haiku and getting more in touch with being aware of what's around you and your feelings. We'll give you the topic later. Plus, it's also Black History Month. We'll talk with an anthropologist about the erasure of that history in the valley and hopes for more awareness about the contributions African-Americans make in the state. I just started asking questions like, where are some neighborhoods, Black communities, long-established institutions and that sort of thing. And it kind of led me down a particular path. But first, a new sci-fi novel examines the role of establishing a permanent human presence in deep space and the tensions between governments and commercial entrepreneurs who would be tasked to do such. Critical Mass is the latest from writer Daniel Suarez, who will be at Poison Pen in Scottsdale. When we caught up recently, I wanted to know how he developed an interest in sci-fi. What got me into it was uh, my first book, Damon, self-published in 2006. I wrote it out of concern sort of about the monocultures of the modern world and these single points of failure that we were building into our society. And ever since then, I think what I've been focused on, both personally and professionally, is sort of the consequences of rapid technological change, you know, how that changes society and how that affects human agency. I mean, this has always fascinated me. I worked for about 17 years in software development. I had a consulting firm designing systems for big companies, and that's where those concerns came from. Well, I guess I'm thankful, uh, at least from my perspective, that you had those concerns because I think technologists do not always. It's the Frankenstein story in some regards, right? You have a new sci-fi thriller out. It's called Critical Mass. I was at least partially curious if maybe just in passing you drew any inspiration from the 2011 novel The Martian by Andy Weir. Of course, that was made into a really popular movie starring Matt Damon, same title. Well, of course, it interested me. And, and of course, I've met Andy. As a matter of fact, he was, uh, he was promoting that book, and we were over at Fox when I was doing Influx over there. So fan of the book, a fan of his work. Um, it's sort of like saying um, you wrote a, a book about the ocean. Uh, you know, it is a huge, huge subject, space. And I think if there is a difference, and there's a major difference between these two stories, because, of course, critical mass also involves a rescue in space although it is set from the perspective of the, of the people doing the rescuing, not so much from the rescuers. And it is also as much about rescuing civilization on Earth. So there is some question about who's rescuing whom. So there are other subtle differences. And it's, it's about big issues of economics and politics and climate change and so forth. So sure, uh, always inspired by good stories about space. I think really where I was focusing with uh, this book and, and the book previous to it was so often in science fiction, the, the matter of humans being settled in space and expanding and having uh, cities in space is already solved. We, we're already out into the universe and in the solar system. And I always wondered, well, exactly how do we achieve that? Because I don't think it's a given. 
Right. I mean, we are we are facing very serious uh, existential crisis in terms of climate change, but also in terms of economics, uh, the rise of authoritarianism and increasing conflict, all of these things. And they could prevent our ability to go into space. So I really wanted to write a series in Critical Mass is the latest in that that depicts precisely how we can do it, how we can reach that more positive future. I did a great deal of research to make sure that the story that I'm telling is rooted you know, firmly in reality, in technology that is, that is being developed and prototyped today. And I spoke to all sorts of uh, entrepreneurs in space. I spoke to billionaires. I spoke to NASA people, scientists, to try to boil down a story that could really happen and not 50 years from now, but now. Well, and it centers on a different type of rescue, as you mentioned. And I wondered if you could just set that up for us briefly. It deals with an asteroid, right? Yes, it it deals with the asteroid Ryugu, which uh, the Hayabusa 2 mission reached uh, back in uh, 2021 and is returning a sample. So the first book, and this is the second book in the series, Critical Mass, although it can be read standalone, both, both of the books, Delta V and Critical Mass, are intended to be able to be read standalone. But that is the story of a commercial asteroid mining expedition that goes to Ryugu and returns resources. And critical mass is set at the point where they've returned these resources. And they need to use these resources to try to rescue colleagues they left behind at this near-Earth asteroid Ryugu. And they need to be ready to do that rescue in time for the asteroid's next close approach to Earth. And the issue is that there's a new Cold War on. This is set in the 2030s. And with competition in, in space and billionaires vying for control, it's a question of who's going to have control of these resources. So it's really who has control in space, you know, what value system are we bringing to space, all of these big questions. I guess others would think in terms of where we're putting our resources, they may have a question of we have so many problems right here on our own planet. Why are we so busy trying to get off this planet? Yeah, and that, that I think is a real important question. And that's one of the issues I really want to get to the heart of in these stories, in critical mass in particular, is that I think going into space is going to be critical in trying to preserve civilization and life here on Earth. Not only that, in trying to provide economic opportunity for billions and billions of people. If you think about it, growth here on Earth, economic growth, is severely constrained because of the climate change and limitations right. on, on finite resources. And even as you and I talk, about half of the Earth's population is living in a really subsistence level, very difficult. So it's really, it's unethical to say to them that they cannot improve their lives. And yet we have to try to preserve the biosphere of Earth. And so I think it's crucial for us to expand industry and commerce into cislunar space, that is the area around the moon and the earth, to try to decarbonize our civilization while also providing economic growth. And I think in that process, people around the world will be cooperating across borders in space. So hopefully we'll be learning to improve international cooperation while increasing economic opportunity. Cooperation, collaboration, I mean, that goes hand in hand with what astronauts do, not only cooperating with themselves. We have the International Space Station, of course, countries cooperate. And of course, with mission control, government entities, there's cooperation. But the notion of commercializing deep space, I think, presents tension, which, of course, is great for storytelling. Tension is always something that you want. 
But I think it also brings up the question, who owns space? It is already commercialized. That's how we're talking with each other right now. <laughs> True indeed. It, right? Yeah. That dilemma you bring up in your book, though. Yes, absolutely. And the, the key thing to think about is space as a new frontier, no longer just fictional, but literally we, we are standing at the crossroads of what we decide will determine what value system we bring into space. And wherever humans go, commerce comes with them. So space would be no different. And then the question is, again, what rule of law? Uh, who owns what? Who enforces contracts? All of these things are being decided now. And really what I wanted to do was really pull uh, mainstream readers into this conversation so they know what the issues are. And I think it's both fascinating, but also very real. So, you know, of course, we talk about this as a sci-fi book, but I'm very tempted to think of it simply as a, a, a near fiction book because uh, science and technology figure prominently in just about any story we tell. I mean, we are essentially heading into sci-fi territory in which we now live. And so we need to make these decisions, you know, to pull industry off the earth, to start building in near space, to obtain all of the resources and energy there to help alleviate the, the crises on earth is really just such a noble goal. But we do need to do it, I think, with equity in the sense that everyone has an opportunity that brilliant minds around the world can contribute. And again, doing so across borders is, I think, what's going to create a peaceful, livable future. And that's one of the hearts of it. The overview effect is what this is sometimes termed. When astronauts have, have gone into space, they very often return somewhat changed in their philosophical outlook because they've seen with their own eyes, right, the earth right. is alone in the universe. There are no borders visible in space. And they see how tenuous that bubble is of our atmosphere. The only place in the entire universe known to harbor life, that changes their perspective. It makes them think globally and, and wanting to be part of all humanity. Critical Mass is the latest novel by Daniel Suarez. It is preceded by Delta V, and Daniel will be at Poison Pin on Friday, February 17th. That's in Scottsdale at 6.30. Daniel, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about Critical Mass. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find out a bit more about Daniel Suarez on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, it's Black History Month. And a lot of it has been erased, omitted, or marginalized in the Valley and the State. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. It's back. Join us for the First Press Fine Wine Dinner and Auction, Saturday, February 18th at Para in Tempe. Enjoy wines from Enriquez Estate Winery in Forestville, California, and Francis Ford Coppola Winery in Geyserville, California. For more information on this premier event, visit firstpress.kjzz.org. First Press is supported by the Friends of Public Radio Arizona. Your mornings can define the rest of your entire day. Find the $5 you forgot about in your pocket, that might be a good day. Get stuck in a traffic mess on the 51, probably going to be a bad one. But when you begin your day with Morning Edition, you start fully awake with the latest and most important news to prepare you for whatever comes next. Take control of your day and listen to Morning Edition from 5 until 9 on KJZZ 91.5. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. 
Our next guest is Director of Inclusion and Community Engagement for the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University and is an assistant clinical professor. Dr. Mesgeram Glegzaber joined me to talk about her recent publication, Where Are All the Black Folks? Popular Narratives and the Erasure of Black History in Arizona, which is published in the Journal of Arizona History. Her work was partly inspired by Chloe T. Hammonds, creative director of Emancipation Arts in Phoenix, which seeks to raise the profile of black artists in Arizona. When we caught up recently to talk about Gleg Zabir's research, we began by discussing her experience before coming to Arizona. I am originally from Ethiopia. Actually, my mother is Eritrean and my father is Ethiopian. I was born there. I moved to the U.S. when I was 13 years old due to some war in the region in East Africa. And I have been, and that was in the U.S. Southeast. Um, I was in Nashville and then I went to college in North Carolina and lived all over. But I came to Arizona to the Valley in 2014. I was finishing up writing my dissertation and my uh, partner had just gotten a job at ASU as a faculty member. So my dissertation, my work overall has always been interested in looking at marginalization um, and um, sense of belonging, claims to space all over, including in places like India. That's where I did my dissertation. But when I arrived here, I became acutely aware of being not seeing a lot of faces that look like mine, essentially. I've lived in a lot of places, uh, three continents, uh, nine cities, and especially in the U.S., every other city I've lived in, there's been about a 30% Black population. And when I got here, it just was a very stark contrast to me that I didn't see that many Black faces. And so I just started asking questions, you know, uh, like, where are some neighborhoods? Black communities, long-established sort of institutions and that sort of thing. And it kind of led me down a particular path that wasn't that far removed from my larger interest and questions around belonging and marginalization. And this led to your piece, Where Are All the Black Folks? Popular Narratives in the Erasure of Black History in Arizona. I have done some work in that sphere with respect to the Great Migration, specifically dealing with migrations to here in Phoenix, but also up north, McNary, and Mm -hmm. the connections out of Louisiana to McNary and lumber mills. So I have some passing familiarity. Starting out in your piece, I just wanted to read to folks a passage. There's been a, a long history of black migration, too, and settlement In what is today Arizona, the dates as far back as the Spanish expeditions of the 1500s through the great migration of the 20th century and well into the present day. And I wondered if you could expand briefly about that Spanish expedition piece of history. So folks may or may not be familiar with little Esteban or Estebancito you may have heard of. He comes up every once in a while, but he was a young enslaved Black person, um, I guess what would have been referred to at the time as a Moor. And he traveled with the uh, Spanish expeditions in the 1500s throughout the American uh, Southwest, um, including Arizona. And he has kind of a very storied history. He's thought to have died during sort of a conflict with some indigenous communities here. But there are other narratives uh, as he was coming as kind of a 
a scouting party, if you will, ahead of some of the larger Spanish conquistadors. And so he was coming to notify the particular community that he was coming to, that the, the Spanish were coming and sort of negotiate some kind of a situation and um, like a, you know, a, a welcome um, if you will, or safe passage. And the, the narrative is that he died in that skirmish. Um, but there are other stories that say that essentially because he was enslaved and he had throughout the sort of had been with these expeditions for a long time had developed relationship with some indigenous communities that they essentially helped him fake his death for his freedom. It's unclear which of those stories is correct or any of them are, but this goes back, like I said, into the 1500s, long before Anglo presence in the Southwest in the 1500s. You mentioned when talking about your background that moving to this region was stark in that there weren't a lot of people to identify with like you had in previous locales. And you write in your research, according to the Arizona Archives Matrix Project, the black community is represented in less than 1% of archival materials in the state. I'm assuming that that was not then a surprise to you when you took a look around and then went to look for official markers of history. The census shows somewhere around 6.8% of the population of Arizona population is black. So even in that comparison, less than 1% is not sort of comparable, right? It's significantly less than even the population. But I didn't actually look into the archival material until I had started this project, as you mentioned, Cloti Hammonds earlier, um, with a community partner who, you know, was very adamant about talking about the history of Black folks. And I sort of, as an academic, took on the the part of the project that required archival research. And I was kind of, you know, I kept finding these archives or collections that claimed to be sort of like the great Arizona collection at ASU library, for example, and whatnot, that spoke about being reflective of sort of the great diversity and the great stories of Arizona. So I I actually was expecting significantly more in these, at least in the academic collections, and I didn't find that. Not only with that, right, but I guess another way that history has been erased uh, because, I mean, omission is an erasure, right, by not having things in state archives, but then demolishing buildings that were prominent for folks in the Black community here is obviously another way to erase history. And you found plenty of research about that fact, correct? Right, about the, the geographic erasures, if you will. Absolutely. So what I found was that in 2004, there had been, I guess the city of Phoenix had commissioned a historic property survey that were uh, significant to the African-American community, right? So they put together a committee to do oral history, archive, all various types of research to compile a list of properties and locations that were significant to the local African-American community. And this was meant to be sort of the first step towards identifying those places as historically significant and therefore protected from demolition. And this committee identified 175 properties. And what's happened in, I guess, the 19 or so years between then and now, actually up until 2020, I don't know what the number is down to now, 97 of those identified properties have been demolished. The reasons around the demolition vary. When we talk about erasure, it's not kind of necessarily some 
unified strategy to erase the history, but it happens for various reasons. Some are older, right? Some of the really important properties that were demolished were demolished part of as part of a much larger project early on for things like building Chase Field or whatever, right? Like, so it's, it's not, it wasn't, they weren't targeted per se. They happened to be in this sort of prime real estate location type of situation. Other places like the first African-American doctor, Dr. Wilson Hackett, and his practice, he had the Booker T. Washington Memorial Hospital that was in the East Lake Park area that was demolished more relatively recently. And, and I haven't been around there, you know, in the past year or so, but for a while after the demolition, it was just sort of an empty lot sitting there. I'm not fully aware of the reasoning behind that demolition, for example. Right. You mentioned Chase Fields. Of course, you had the Rice Hotel in downtown Phoenix that was demolished to make way for that. That was listed in the Negro Motorist Green Book as a safe place for black travelers in 1940, right? What are you hopeful for in terms of the near future for Phoenix and in conjunction with your research? There are a lot more stories out there that are accessible to the wider public. And hopefully what that means, too, is that there will be a shift and an emphasis and sort of a, a highlighting of community archiving that's been happening within the local Black communities, right? So I do want to point out that while I talk about this dearth of information in the official archives or the official history books, local Black communities have been telling these stories and keeping those memories and those histories alive within the community from the beginning. So hopefully a highlighting and an emphasis of that work that's already been done within those communities will continue to grow and become accessible to the wider public. Dr. Mescaram Glegzaber, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your research. Thank you so much for having me. You can find a longer discussion with Dr. Glegzaber and her entire article, which is available through the end of March on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, February means National Haiku Writing Month, Nahai Raimo, and the 2023 KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest. I'm Tom Maxinon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Whether you spend rush hour in the car or in the kitchen, All Things Considered from KJZZ and NPR is there. Get up to date while you're getting home or getting dinner started. Listen to KJZZ between 3 and 6 on 91.5 or the mobile app. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. It's time to launch the 2023 KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest. This year, our theme asks the question, what's something you want to reset in your life? You can find a link to the rules on our website, or if you're not listening to this program on it, go to haiku.kjzz.org. Our contest is inspired by Washington State resident Michael Dillon Welch, who began the practice a long time ago but not in a galaxy far, far away. I first thought of the idea in November of 2010. Uh, I was doing NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. 
And actually in October, just before that started, I thought, hey, there ought to be a National Haiku Writing Month. So I thought of it in October of 2010. And I thought February would be the best month. So for the uh, in the year, the shortest month, the shortest genre of poetry. So I picked February, and that's not far after November, so it gave me time, time to set it up. Um, I, I got the domain name nahirimo.com and created a Facebook page, uh, began to sort of tell people about it. And so it began officially in February of 2011. So do the math. It's a dozen <laughs> years here. And it's been exciting to see it grow. And I think the right now there are at least 3,700 followers of the page on Facebook. Not all of them will actually engage in doing it. It's typically about 100 or so. But the interest was steady and really rewarding. For those who are brand new to the idea, set it up for us in terms of what you're looking for people to do during the month of February, day by day. Yeah, uh, the idea is to write at least one haiku a day each day throughout the month of February. Whether you are engaged with Facebook or not is beside the point. The point is to do it for yourself at least. However, the community does have a focus on Facebook, and there are daily writing prompts there as well, which helps. Um, but you can write whatever you want, on whether you follow the prompts or not, write for yourself. Don't even share it with anybody if that's what you, what you like. Uh, because you can still gain the haiku habit by by writing for yourself. And the idea, I think, is awareness of daily life by reporting your perceptions and experiences through haiku. And then the sharing of those poems is a separate act. Uh, and a lot of that happens on, on Facebook. However you want to share, that's, that's up to you. The idea is to just celebrate haiku and getting more in touch with being aware of what's around you and your feelings reaction to experiences. It's been amazing to me. We are kicking off our fourth year of a contest, which full disclosure came from you. And we like to touch base with you, you know, every couple of years to see how things have been going in, in your sphere. And I've just been really impressed by the amount of participation that we have gotten. Teachers all over the state have created their own writing prompts to not only introduce poetry to children's lives, but also to show people that, hey, plenty of people do this kind of thing. You know, this is not just some kind of esoteric event. How do you keep people engaged? And are you surprised that so many still are? Why do you think that is the case? Is it due to the shortness of the form, for instance? I think shortness has something to do with it. It, it feels accessible can think up a haiku while you're stopped at a stoplight, for example, while driving, or whatever experience happens to you, you have to take a moment to notice it. And then if you write it down and how you feel about an event or an experience, it's just a matter of tuning in. And, and this reminds me of Mary Oliver in a segment of one of her poems. It's called Instructions for Living a Life. And it's also, I think, instructions for writing haiku. And she says three things. One, pay attention. I think that's what haiku poets do. And if you write haiku regularly, you begin to pay attention more often. That's a good thing. So pay attention. Number two is be astonished. 
And that's something perhaps you can't learn. It's intuitive. It's, it, you're either astonished by the amazingness of life around you or not. You know, but if you are, you might write haiku about it. And then number three is tell about it. So pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. And telling about it could be writing a haiku, it could be a short story, it could be taking a photograph, uh, however you communicate whatever you've paid attention to, I think is, is good instruction for living life and good instruction for writing haiku. Michael, I'm going to put you on the spot here, and if you need to look one up, that's fine, or if you have one committed to memory, would you take us out with a haiku of your own? Ah, let's see. Winter evening, the chairs askew after the poetry reading. Michael Dylan Welch, godfather of haiku. I want to thank you so much for coming back on a routine basis. We really appreciate it, and folks can find you on Facebook. Take care, Michael. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Public Radio, which is largely made possible by the essential and ongoing support of its listeners who become sustaining members. You can count on KJZZ to bring you important news, thought-provoking discussion, and entertaining programming like Word. And so, we're counting on you to help sustain this vital public resource with a gift of support at kjzz.org. Just click on the Donate tab. While you're online, don't forget to enter the 2023 KJZZ Haiku Running Contest or tell a friend about it. This year's theme asks, what's something you want to reset in your life? I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening to Word. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.